opportunity to eat. And so it was a, it was a, a strenuous time, but I, I appreciate everyone that was there. We had uh, well over 20 people there uh, and lots of kids helping and, uh, and a, lot of, a lot of happy people coming through the line. And so uh, we just are excited about what God is doing here. And I'm excited about what God's going to do this morning. And uh, I want to start with a story out of the Old Testament, and it's, it's a story that really has set a pattern for many of us, uh, whether you know it or not, um, and it's, it's a pattern throughout Scripture as well. It's, there's a point in time in the, in the book of Genesis where God kind of breaks the silence, and he shares his plan for how he is going to redeem mankind with, with one person. His name was Abram. And he shares that him and his wife, Sarai, they are going to be a part of this plan. And it's going to be as a result of their descendants that God would bring about salvation. And he promised this salvation and he had this plan that he was going to carry out through them. There was just one problem. In order to have descendants, you need at least a kid. And they didn't have any at that time. And they had been married for a while and had yet to produce any children. And so I'm sure as Abram was hearing that plan, he, he thought, okay, God's going to do something here. Something's about to happen. Well, 10 years later, still no children. So Sarai decides to go to Abram and say, I think I know what we're supposed to do. We're going to come up with an alternate plan. You see, God said he was going to do something through your descendants. In order for that to happen, you need to have a child. So here's Hagar, my, my hand servant. Well, that, if you know the story, produced way more problems than solutions, as, it, as you would imagine it would. And then shortly after, God once again visits Abram, communicates the plan again, communicates the promise again. This time, Abram's 99 years old. Sarai's 90. The plan seems even more impossible. But this time, God does something different. He changes their names, changes their names to communicate exactly what he's trying to say. He goes from Abram, which is exalted father, an ironic name up to that point, to Abraham, father of many nations. Just to drive that point home, Sarai goes to Sarah. Both mean princess, continual communication that you will be the head of a family that impacts the entire world. You see, we see that story and we think, wow, what drama, what chaos in that family. And we realize that how often we too hear of God's plan and promise and we lose patience with it. And so we choose alternate plans or we stop believing and following after Jesus. But Jesus does call us to be patient with his promise and his plan in our lives and in the world and what he's carrying it out because he has called each and every one of us to be a part of his plan of redemption. He calls us to be a part of his plan to bring the gospel to people that need to hear it, to bring about life change, his plan to draw us closer to become more like Christ. And I got to tell you, that's the thing we're going to focus on this morning, because if there's one area that I often lose patience in, it's what God is doing in me and that I often want to come up with alternate plans and, and decide that, Jesus, you don't know what you're doing. I guess I'm going to try to do this on my own. And in fact, impatience in this area, I, I think, is often shown in management, in trying to control and trying to control the situation, the environment. I've lost patience in what God is doing in me. It isn't happening fast enough, so I'm going to try to speed up the process. Now, Peter's the guy we've been reading through in this series, and we're going to look at a story today where he seeks to manage Jesus's plan. 
And we, we first got introduced to Peter last week as we began this series, and we looked at John 1.42, and we saw that when Jesus meets Peter, he was named Simon. And just like Abram, Jesus changes Simon's name to communicate his plan and purpose for his life, that Peter would also be a part of God's redemptive plan, that he would help bring about the promise of salvation. When Jesus walks up to Simon and says, you are Simon, but you shall be Peter. He was bringing up this concept of a foundational stone because Peter means stone or rock. And, and we talked about how this whole idea of sand and stone is, is reverberated all throughout scripture of the foundational concept of what we build our lives on versus the shifting sand that we so often want to build our lives on simply because it is often easier. I can cut corners and I don't have to face heart issues. Last week, we looked at Matthew 7, that Sermon on the, on the Mount ending story where Jesus uses these two alternating concepts to, to communicate that all of us are building houses. We're all living lives, and all of us are going to experience the wind and the waves. Those two things are guaranteed. The question remains of what we will build our life upon. On the rock of salvation that we find in Christ and the rock of our, our faith in him, the rock, the stone, or on shifting sand. That's, that's the question we face. And so uh, as we're looking at the story of Peter, last week we saw this pairing of the beginning of Peter being in John 1.42 and then kind of what is representative of the end of his story in his epistles in 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, where we are reminded that God is building upon the stone and that we are then called living stones that he is using to build up this house. So God is building a stone house. And as I thought about that, I found this picture that I wanted to throw up for you. It's in outside of Scotland. It's called the Knapp of Hower. And, and if you are into geographic terms, you might know what a Knapp is. I was unaware um, but this stone house is older than the pyramids. It's one of the oldest stone structures on the planet. It's on an island. As you can see, most of the dirt in front of it has eroded over time. But this stone house has withstood thousands of years of wind and waves. And I was built to last. It was built with patience. And I think that's a great picture of what we are told in that, in that passage that God is building us up as living stones and he's building a stone house with patience built to last. But we kind of want to hurry the, hurry the process along, right? We, we have a hard time with stonework, as we talked about last week. It's, 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 it takes more time, takes more effort. And so I came across this Second picture, which I think is an, uh, such a great image of what he's doing in us as living stones. This is actually a wall in Peru. It's part of an Incan uh, temple, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce the name if you've ever looked at Inc Incan words. In fact, as I, as I studied this, apparently no one really even knows exactly how to spell it. There's several different spellings all over the place. But this was built in the 13th century, and these, these stones are human-sized stones. You can't, I, there's other ones where you see people standing in front of them for scale. These were dry fit in the 13th century. That means no grout, no mortar. And I love that one right in the middle that's kind of like got all these edges on it. And they still, to this day, don't even know how they did it. 
to, put, to, to fit these stones so precisely without any modern instruments or, or mechanics by hand, no grout or mortar, and they stuck together. In fact, when the Spanish showed up, uh, what they did to try to demoralize them was try to destroy their religious center. So they tried to tear down their temple and they ended up just burying it. Uh, in 1934, it was discovered once again, and it's been a, a, a popular tourist site ever since then. But what an image of what God is doing with us and through us as he builds up his house, built to last, built with patience, with us, living stones, as he shapes us. But this process takes time, requires patience on our part as God is doing these small things and these small actions and sometimes big things to fit us into that spot that he has for you and me. But we want a faster way, right? So we're going to look at a story out of Matthew 16, an account of Peter, once again, the case study for this whole idea of building our house on the sand or building our house on the stone, where once again, we're going to see moment by moment uh, of him being... uh, just choosing to build his house on the stone and recognizing who Jesus is right next to another story or right next to another phrase where he seems to have forgotten that and moved on to building his house on sand. And it's, it's in Matthew 16. And we're going to start kind of mid conversation in verse 15. He's going to say, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? So right before this, if if you're familiar with the passage, he had been asking them kind of a focus group poll time. What's everybody saying about me? What are people saying? Who do the people say I am? So they're throwing out various answers. And so then he gets down to it and said, yeah, but what about you guys? Who do you say I am? And so once again, we see Peter rise to a leadership role within the disciples they may have also said things, but we're, what is recorded here is now from what does everybody else think to what do you disciples think to Simon Peter, what do you think? Where are you in this process? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ or the Messiah, son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona or Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Peter is given a pop quiz, and apparently he passes with flying colors. He he just goes right out there and says, you are the Messiah. I have seen you do miraculous things. I have heard your teaching like no other, and I have given everything up to follow you. And so he, this is his grand confession, and this is the second time we see Jesus bring up this name change. And you see, it now is no longer in a future tense, but it is, is a present and ongoing tense, so to speak, that he says, now that you have come to this point where you have placed your faith in me and you have made this confession of who I truly am, you are becoming the rock that I said you would become. And in fact, he goes further to say, you are becoming a foundational stone built on the foundation, me, the Christ, the living God. But, as with Peter, there's always a but. He is, on one hand, the rock, but he hasn't arrived yet. 
right? God is working in our lives. He is shaping us as living stones, but the process isn't, isn't done. It is a lifelong process. And so we want to skip a few verses and jump up to verse 21, because we're going to see here where Peter starts to lose patience, starts to lose patience. Verse 21, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So it's from that time Jesus began. The, the wording there implies that this wasn't one phrase thrown out that maybe some of them didn't catch. This was, this is all Jesus is talking about. And Peter had just had enough of that. It's enough of that kind of talk, right? That's the, that's the parent at dinner time. That's enough. Had enough of that kind of talk. And so he decides that he is going to stand up and manage the plan. He has grown impatient with the plan and the promise. And after all, since he was the one to identify the Messiah, it only makes sense that he's the one that should be telling the Messiah how the plan is going to work. I mean, that makes sense, right? That is slightly sarcastic. I'm sorry if you weren't catching that. But I think it's indicative of how we sometimes behave towards God of, of saying, well, I, I'm the one out here doing it. I'm out on the field. You're at the home office. I, I know what's going on. Let me just handle this, God. So he decides to speak up. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, which I find interesting that he calls Jesus Lord while he's rebuking him. I don't know if you catch that odd pairing. This shall never happen to you. He just got done identifying that Jesus is the son of the living God. And so he decides. Let, let that just kind of soak and, you know, a little bit. Because I have to stop, and although Peter's our case study, we're really, as I said, the reason I like him so much is when I look at him, I see my reflection, and I wonder, do you ever rebuke God? Because I know I do. I rebuke God whenever I don't like the plan. I don't like the plan, or I don't like the speed of the plan. I rebuke him, and I say... And I ask a question that I think Peter's asking, and I think we often ask, is, do you know what you're doing? Right. Last week, the question was, can I trust you? This week, we continually ask God, do you know what you're doing? Because I'm over here watching this plan unfold, and I don't think you know what you're doing. So we can sit from a distance of time and space and say, Peter, what in the world? You know, I don't know if the other disciples, if it says he pulls, pulled them aside. So hopefully this wasn't too embarrassing for Peter to everyone else. But if, if, you know, if the other disciples are kind of overhearing this, I just wonder if they're just like, oh, you know, come on, Peter. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me or a stumbling stone. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. There is a lot in what Jesus has to say to Peter. And I think 
he communicates these same things to me as well. He, he calls out what Peter says for what exactly it is, which is a temptation from Satan. This is a temptation from Satan. It sounds exactly like the temptations that Satan gave to Jesus in the wilderness. It's exactly the same temptation he gives you and me every day. Just build on, stone, on sand and I'll make sure it doesn't wash away this time. Cut corners. Jesus, take the throne without the cross. Follow Jesus without the suffering. Build on sand and, and trust me, it'll last. Right? That's the temptation we hear. And Jesus is treating it as such to Peter of, of essentially saying, you, Satan, are tempting me once again to divert from my father's plan. God has set this plan in motion from before the founding of the world that the son would pay the penalty for our sins to bring about the promise of salvation. And you, Peter, are taking the place of the tempter. Peter goes from a foundation stone to a stumbling stone. That's what that word is when it says hindrance. The, the Greek word there is scandalon. And it is, it is unique to the New Testament in the, in the sense that it's the idea of a stone or a rod that is left out for the purpose of tripping someone. This is a trap, a temptation. He went from being a part of the plan to trying to prevent the plan. In fact, this is ironically, and probably bad word there, not ironically, serendipitously, the same word that Peter uses to describe Jesus in 1 Peter 2, 8, when he says Jesus was a stumbling stone to the Pharisees. He was the one that they always tripped up on because they couldn't figure out how to fit him into what they thought God's plan was because they were continually fighting against God's plan and promise. And they, they couldn't figure out how Jesus fit with that and they would trip up on it. Well, Jesus is calling Peter out for being that very thing. And then he goes further to say, you don't have your mind on the things of God. Instead, you're thinking about the way men see things. See, and that was the problem with the Pharisees is they saw things from an earthly point of view and a temporary point of view. Jesus is saying, if you want to be patient with my plan and my promise, you, it requires having an eternal perspective requires having an eternal perspective. What do I mean by that? Well, what's an eternal perspective? An eternal perspective <clears throat> is that thing where in every situation, we understand the aspect of salvation and eternity. So if, if I want to have patience with God's plan and his promise, it requires having an eternal perspective. It requires having it and keeping it. So that when I am undergoing some situation where Satan walks up and says, hey, don't worry about what Jesus wants. Trust me, just, just start building on sand. It's faster. Just dig into the sand. It's so much easier. Stop trusting and depending and building your life on the stone. Trust me. And so we begin to put our eyes on earthly and temporary things and they become the priority. Whereas whenever I start to view myself and people around me in light of eternity, I have a very different perspective. And now when I, when I am tempted to remove grace in a relationship, I have to remember, you know what, Jesus came to die for this person so that we both could spend eternity with him. This is an eternal 
situation. Now, I think this rebuke really stung Peter, but I think it also hung around for quite a while. In fact, we're going to jump all the way to the end of Peter's story. And in fact, some of his very last words that we read in 2 Peter chapter 3. So if you turn over there with me in 2 Peter chapter 3, this would have been very near the end of his life. Uh, history and tradition tells us that Peter was martyred. In fact, at the end of John, Jesus tells Peter that, that there would be one day where he would be led somewhere he did not want to go. And we are told that he was going to be led to be crucified. And, and, and tradition says that he was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified like his Lord. But we know that he is, he is martyred shortly after these words. And I think that Jesus's rebuke really changed his heart. I think it was as last week I, I brought up that righteous violence idea of, of the stonemason, of knocking off a hard corner. I think this was one of those times that it happened. Because as we read this, one, several times throughout his first and second epistles, Peter talks about patience, about God's patience. I think it, it has become a core value in his life. But here he is teaching us, he's teaching those in the first century that are experiencing suffering and wondering how are we supposed to live out our faith when, when everywhere we go we're, we're pushed against and, and we're being arrested and we're being tortured and people are dying for their faith and they're beginning to lose patience with Jesus's plan. When Jesus said he was going to come back, they were expecting it to happen right away. And so they, they kept looking around going, well, it's getting worse and worse and worse. So how is this, what is going on? And so Peter begins in, in verse eight and he says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Do not overlook this fact. The fact, and I like that he says, he uses that word, fact, that God is not bound by time is something we all know intuitively, but we overlook it when we think about our daily lives because we are so bound by time. Don't overlook the fact that for God, time is different. He works in us differently than we work with each other. The Lord, in verse Nine is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I see in these two simple verses some really big truths, and it's this, that our plans are defined by a scarcity of time. God's plans are defined by an abundance of grace. And that scarcity of time and that abundance of grace seem to clash every day when I have to make a decision on whether I'm going to build with stone or I'm going to build with sand. Well, what's scarcity? Some of you took economics and finance. I didn't. I've just kind of figured out what scarcity means through real life and knowing that I'd never have enough of anything. That's scarcity. There's a, there's a finite amount of everything. And we got to work in that system. Money does, just doesn't keep coming, right? It runs out. Stuff runs out. And time is scarce, at least from our point of view. There's never enough of it, right? And we all have the plans that we're trying to do, and it just never, we never seem to have enough hours in the day. I had a, my football coach was one of his big things that he always told us was everybody gets 24 hours. It's not like someone's working with more time than you. 
So if you see someone that seems to be more productive and more efficient, they're not getting an extra edge of time. They're just using it better than you. <laughs> but our plans are defined by a scarcity of time. So when I say I'm going to do this with my, with my career, I'm going to do this with my family, you know, especially family, right? Kids grow up so quickly and everybody's been making comments about my oldest. Like it seems like we got shut down and he came back and he was 10 years older. Yeah, it happened, it happened so quickly and, and scarcity of time creeps up on us and, and we start to falter and maybe lose faith. And when maybe my career isn't going as well, my family isn't going as well as I planned. But God's plans are defined by an abundance of grace. And so when I begin to lose patience with what God is doing in my life, I can realize, you know, God is, is drawing me to himself through all of these various situations and, and in communities. And, and when I have a friend, maybe that I think, God, why aren't you doing something in his life? To remember that God has not forgotten. God is not slow as other people mark slowness. He is patient. And in verse 10, we get kind of the, the period to this, this thought that Peter is communicating. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up with that repetition of certainty. They will have, this will happen. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The earthly temporary things that seem to pull us away from our eternal perspective, they will go away. They are temporary. This will happen. So we should not mistake God's patience with a promise not kept. Right? So, so as God continues to work in my life and it is not happening fast enough, as God's plan is unfolding all around me and it is not happening in a way that I would choose, we think, well, God's just, he's not keeping his promise. He is not a promise keeper. He is not a way maker. But Peter encourages us with these words, with these words of certainty to say, no, he will do this. This will happen. One day, all of this stuff will get rolled up and put away like we would a game or a, a dinner dishes. And it's just, it's done. The time is done. We're cleaning it all up. It's going away. The time is done. This will happen. Don't mistake God's patience with an unkept promise. So he goes on in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. And what do we mean? What, what's things stuff? The things that pull our hearts away. The things that pull our hearts away. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. How are we to wait and hasten for God's plan and promise? How are we to do that? It does seem like sometimes I'm just on a river and I have no, I, I got no impact on where this river goes or where I go and I'm just going along. 
Well, being patient with God's plan and promise does not mean we are, are just puppets in this whole play and, and we just kind of play our part and move on. In fact, he's going to go on and, and give some descriptions about what it looks like for us to wait and hasten this plan and this promise. And it is, it is very similar to Jesus's parable about building our houses on the stone. Because if you remember that story, being at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, the person that hears my words and applies them is the wise person that builds on stone. The person that hears my words and ignores them is the foolish person that builds on sand. And the results of that work will be shown based on which foundation you choose to build upon. And so when Peter says you need to wait and hasten the coming of the Lord, he is describing a life of applying and, and knowing the words of, of Christ, of living them out. <clears throat> In verse 14, his final words that he gives to us, he says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. At peace, so contrary to shifting sand. When I choose to build my life on sand, it is anything but peaceful. And things are constantly falling apart, and I, it does not withstand the wind. But what's the spot and blemish thing? I mean, are we supposed to live perfect lives? Is that what, what Peter is calling us to? No. I mean, ease those, that burden. <laughs> we are not being called to be perfect. In fact, that would run contrary to being patient in what God is doing in my life. As we said last week, life change is not a light switch. It's a lifelong process. The chapter before this, Peter is calling out false teachers that are coming in and pulling people away from the rock, from the stone and his teaching. And he labels those false teachers as blemishes. And now he brings up the term again for those of us that are waiting, diligently living our lives, seeking the words of Christ, seeking to follow after him and saying, don't be pulled away. Don't be, don't, don't listen to that temptation that Peter gave to Jesus of, hey, just sidestep whatever plan Jesus has for your life and just do your own thing. Be found diligently following after the rock, building on the stone. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. There's that eternal perspective idea that when Jesus is waiting and continuing to work in our lives, he's doing so with eternity in mind. The promise of salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. <clears throat> also a little ironic considering the, the, the conflict that we read about last week between Paul and Peter. So apparently between the writing of Galatians and the writing of second Peter, the two of them got on the same page. And Peter is now acknowledging the fact that God is using Paul's words to build up this house of living stone. Just as our beloved brother, Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in, the, of, in them of these matters. Now, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which is self-evident in how we've, as the church, have argued over some of those things for 2,000 years. Some of them are hard to understand. Ignorant and unstable, unstable twists to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. 
But you, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. There it is, stability. Which foundation has a better stability? We lose stability when we choose to build our life on sand. When we choose to go the way that Sarai did, when she lost patience with God's plan in keeping his promise and came up with an alternate plan, when she chose to kind of sidestep God's plan, and I think I do the same thing of kicking down doors, of, of running the long way around, of when, when God says, wait, rushing forward, of seeking to manage what he might have for my life. But here's the final thing. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Grow in the grace. So contrary uh, or contrasting ideas, don't lose your stability, but instead grow in grace. Be patient in the grace that God gives you. And when when you are tempted to lose patience, grow in grace and rest in the name that he has given you. He's given us all a new name as he calls us to be patient with his plan and promise, just like he did Abram, just like he did Peter. He gives us this new name so that we can trust him, so that we can be reminded of the fact that even though God may be slow, according to our perspective, he is not slow. He is not forgotten. He's not given up on you. And if you are out there sitting and thinking that God has given up his plan on your life because you've just, you've tripped up too many times. Know that none of those sins, none of those failures caught Jesus by surprise as he was hanging on the cross, paying the penalty for those sins. It was very eye-opening for me personally when I realized after one failure and, and groveling and saying, God, I just, I don't know what happened. I don't, you, I don't know why you, you chose me to follow you. And I just realized, you know, when that happened, when God chose me, he was already aware of the entire laundry list. There, there is no failure, no sin that surprises God and he is patient with us. He is gracious with us and he calls us to grow in his grace and remember the new name that he gives us, a forgiven one, child of God. This is, these are our new names, right? So when I am tempted to grow impatient, when I begin to say, God, why am I still struggling this area? God, why haven't you conquered this in me yet? Why, God, is this person that I keep sharing the gospel with continuing to reject it. Why, God, do my kids continue to run away from you? And we're called to rest in his grace, to grow in his grace. And as soon as I can begin to give grace and be patient with his plan in my life and trust that the promise will be kept, I can begin to give grace to those around me. Because I can start to look at you and realize he's doing the same exact thing in your life as he's doing in my life. He's building all of us up as living stones, a house that's built with patience and a house that's built to last. Last week, I invited you to come up and, and take a stone, and many of you did. And as the worship team is going to come on up, I'm going to invite you once again. And this is kind of a, 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 a homework assignment, I guess. If you have stones out in your yard, feel free to go out and pick one up. But there are many around, and either during our last two songs or after the service, if you didn't last week, feel free to take one home. 
And here's the assignment. You're going to take it home and you're going to think, God, what is this new name you're giving me? What is the thing that you're asking me to have patience with? What is the thing you're asking me to trust you with? What's the name that you've given me that I am continually forgetting? Like child of God, like forgiven one, like faithful, like loved Find a Sharpie, write that name on that stone. And what we're going to do next week is have an opportunity for those that would like to bring it back and share that name. And I would really excited to hear what God is doing in your life and how he's using this uh, series and, and this, this look at Peter's life uh, to, to really see what, what God is doing in your life and in my life. So let me pray. Dear Lord, this... This life that we see written out in scripture so reflects my own, reflects what I've heard other people as they uh, 